Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. We thank you because of what you've done for us. And we thank you that we get to know you, that you have made yourself known to us. And you make yourself known to us through your son, Jesus. And so we know you, Father, through Christ. And you indwell us with your very spirit. And the life we now live is no longer ours, but Christ's. And so what Jesus loves is you, Father. And Jesus in us loves you. And we with Christ and in Christ love you too. Which wouldn't be possible without your grace. We did not earn favor with you. We're not good enough. We didn't behave well enough. We didn't do all the right things. We didn't follow the right pattern. We didn't say the right words. We didn't do the right actions that make us right with you. You made us right with you by graciously giving us your son, Jesus, who dies on a cross for a death that we deserve, that is our death, is our cross. And he substitutes himself as a sacrifice in our place to give to us your righteousness and to take from us our sin in your forgiving love. You are patient with us, Lord. You are forgiving and understanding. You are gentle with us. You do not deal with us according to our iniquities, but according to your grace. And because of that, our response should be Romans 12, 1. Our life is a living sacrifice to you. Help us see that today. Help us live that today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So women here who've been married, maybe you are married, were married, I want you to think about that moment when your, at the time, boyfriend proposed to you, that moment when you knew your future was going to be forever tied to this man to whom you just said yes. Remember that? Like, think about that, women. What emotions filled your heart Love, excitement, hope for a future of joy with the man that you love. Like those are pretty common things. I'm sure that if you're married, you maybe talk about that proposal every once in a while. And my wife and I will talk about it and we'll watch some TV show and this couple falls in love and I'll look at her and I'll be like, I proposed to you. And she's like, yeah, you did. You know, whatever. So (laughs) we get all like, you know, touchy-feely and lovey, whatever. And so uh, my wife loves that I'm going to share more about with you later about something my wife uh, always told me. But you said yes, and you said yes for a reason, because you felt something, you knew something, you wanted that man, and he proposed to marry you, and you were like, yes, and you said yes, because you were excited and in love and full of happiness and joy, and you were so satisfied that he proposed to you Men, remember when you proposed, what, did you, what you did and what you said and, and what was going through your heart and through your mind, like what emotions consumed you, man. I remember for me, um, 
I took my wife to this, like it's this nature reserve type thing in Waukesha, which is where we, you know, southeastern Wisconsin, that's where our family is, that's where we got married, that's where we met. And I walked her, we, we did all these other things throughout the day, so I just kind of did all the things that she loves and then took her to this nature reserve place and walked her through this whole thing, holding her hand the whole time. And you get through the nature reserve and you come out on this prairie and this prairie is a huge hill and you stand at the top of the hill and you can see the entire city of Waukesha. It's beautiful. And we're holding hands and she says to me, she's like, and I've got the ring in my pocket. And <laughs> she says, why are your hands so sweaty? I'm like, no reason. I'm not nervous or anything. Just, you know, this is normal. It's warm out. <laughs> so we get to this this edge, you know, this like top of this hill and you can see the whole city. It's just, it's like a, you know, it's kind of the culmination of this just wonderful day we just spent together. I even wore the exact outfit that she always says, you look best in this. So I wore that. Like I was doing everything I can. And then, um, you know, I got this ring in my pocket and I say some things to her. I'm not going to share all the details with you guys. So I say some things to her, pull out the ring, turn, get down on one knee, open the box, propose to my wife. And she's like, her first words are, no way. And I'm like, no, wait, what? <laughs> what do you mean, no way? She's like, yes, yes. <laughs> Scared me for a minute, but she meant yes. I was like, Ooh, okay, good, because I wouldn't have asked if I wasn't sure. And for a moment there, I wasn't sure. So I think about what consumed me. Even in her response, that moment is like engraved in my memory. I'm sure yours is engraved in your memory too. For most people, it's a cherished memory that maybe the two of you recount together somewhat often, you know, like we do. Um, and the reason I want you to remember that moment is because I will later propose to you a, a different kind of response to a marriage proposal that would have caused a different outcome in your relationship. And what that difference would mean to your, not only your earthly relationship with your spouse, but what that kind of response would mean to our relationship with Jesus. So I'm just priming you for a thought experiment that I hope reveals to you ultimately the joy of the gospel. So last week we covered verse 21 where Paul said to Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So Paul's motivation was for Timothy to recognize that God is the witness between Paul and Timothy as Paul gives Timothy these instructions. It's a matter of accountability. He's placing the accountability of God into Timothy's perception as Timothy leads the church and enforces these rules in the church to ensure that Timothy follows these rules and that he follows them without prejudice or partiality to ensure that the rules are followed in a way that honors God the most. And what we eventually concluded last week was that the solution to avoid this prejudice in following these rules in the church is to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. For Timothy specifically to be Christ-centered, Jesus-focused, to have our eyes set on Christ, is to have our eyes set on the Word. Jesus is the Word, right? John 1, 1. And verse 14, Revelation 19, 13, Jesus is the word. 
So to set our eyes on the word is to set our eyes on Christ. To read the word is to hear Christ. To be in the word is to be in Christ. These are his words. So our relationship with Jesus is determined by our relationship to the word. Like We need to absorb that thought for a second. What is your relationship to the word? Whatever that is, is your relationship to Jesus himself. So if you are a Christian and you believe that Jesus is your savior and you say you love him and you want to follow him and you're not in his word, then you're not following. It's that simple. My wife is commanded in scripture to follow me. The wife, this is 1 Corinthians 11, the wife submits to the husband, the husband leads. The husband submits to Christ, Christ leads. Christ submits to the father, the father leads. It's a matter of roles, not a matter of worth. And so if I'm going one direction and my wife, and I say to my wife, follow me in this direction, and she goes, I'm not listening to you. Do you think she's going to follow me? Probably not, whether intentional or unintentional. She's not going to know where I'm going because she's not listening. It's the same reality. It's kind of a vague analogy, but like it's the same reality with the word of God. His word is his voice to us, directing us, and we are to follow it. So we follow Christ by following his word. So our eyes being set on Christ means our eyes are set in the word, which ensures that we are at least aware of of God's rules and commands. So the word tells us what to do and how to do it and why we do it. And so we listen to the word of God to hear Christ speak, to understand and be aware of what are God's commands, what are his rules, what do I have to do, what should I not do, what should I avoid, what should I pursue, how should I feel, what should I think, what is my doctrine, what is God like, what is Christ like, what am I like without Christ, what am I like with Christ, why am I this way in Christ, what happened. All of these things are answered in scripture and all of those things fulfill the requirement for the Christian life. But we need to be in the word to know them. So Paul is saying that not only does the word of God hold you accountable, but God himself is present. In verse 21, he's present and therefore holding you accountable with his presence. And I've said this before, God's presence is not a matter of whether or not God is present, but God's presence from our perspective, is a matter of whether or not we perceive him. So our perception of God's presence is dependent on our pursuit of God in Christ. And to pursue Christ is to pursue the word of God in which we become aware of the presence of God. And in doing so, we're reminded of his word, we're reminded of his commands, we're reminded of what it means to follow him, and we're reminded of his presence, which holds us accountable to our obedience in him. And when we talk about obedience, we are not talking about, hey, everybody, listen up. There are rules in the Bible, you have to follow them, period. 
Because what that kind of statement lacks is reason and motivation and purpose. It is, and what that kind of statement produces, if we're just like, these are the rules, just do them. If that's our perspective, like God just demands that we follow his rules, that we obey his laws, period. Then obedience becomes our God. And obedience is not our God. Obedience is a thing that God produces in us as our means to reveal not only that we belong to him, not only that we follow him, but that we want to, that we love him, that we pursue him, that we're following him. So the reason for the commands is for our joy in him. When we obey, we do become satisfied in him. That's why we should obey them. We don't obey them for the moral reasons of just we're doing good. I mean, that's a, such a worldly perspective on the gospel. How many people do you know or have you met in your life or talked to in your life that, have, that you've asked them, how do you know you're going to heaven? And their response is, well, I'm a good person. That's not going to cut it. And the reality is, uh, no, you're not. Not according to Romans 3, 10 through 18. Not according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Not according to Jeremiah 17, 9. You're not a good person. None of us are. So our entire relationship is predicated on this desire we have for Christ. And what that desire produces is a want I want to obey him because in my obedience to him, I feel satisfied in my relationship with him. So that moral goodness that I do in my life is not about when I obey, God's happy with me because then we start to predicate our relationship with God on our behavior and the relationship of our, our relationship with God is not predicated on our behavior but on the behavior of Christ and what Christ has done to transform us from not desiring him to desiring him. Now, as I said last week, that kind of description of the importance of following God's rules can sort of make us feel, you know, like God's this heavenly police officer ready to take us to jail at the first offense. However, the presence of God and of Jesus Christ and of the elect angels is not meant to, to be a condemning feel, but an encouraging one, reminding us that though God has standards that he expects us to follow, his presence is a reminder that he not only is not only watching us from on, from on high, but that he is, that he works from within. His presence is, is not only his sovereign eye from the heavens, but a very real present help within the powerful working of his Holy Spirit who dwells within us and is the one who enables obedience in us. That is such a profound reality, and that's why we have to be in the Word, because the Word tells us that your obedience is the work of God. It also tells us there is a participation on our human end to, into that work. But we're also told it's the Spirit's work. He's the good. The Spirit of Christ is in us. Galatians 2.20 is no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me in the life I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the Son of God, Christ himself, working in me. The best action you could ever perform in your life, the greatest act of obedience that you could ever perform in your life is to obey the gospel. And what I mean by obey the gospel is believe 
in Christ. You know that moment when you were justified, when you were saved? You probably uttered some words, something to the effect of, I believe in Jesus, or what you're essentially claiming is, Jesus is Lord. That's how scripture sometimes describes that statement, that that faith that comes out of our mouth, that day, that moment when we believe in the gospel. That is obedience to the gospel. When we put our faith in Christ, the day we become a believer, that moment we are justified as righteous before God and our sins are forgiven, in that moment when we are justified, we usually say something like, uh, I believe in the gospel. I, I, I want you, Jesus, to be my Lord and Savior, essentially claim. I mean, Jesus is Lord, and what 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says is no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit who produces our obedience. It is the Spirit who is doing the good through you. You are a participant in that good work. You are participating in those words. And if you're thinking to yourself, no, 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 it wasn't the Spirit. I wanted that. The reason you wanted that is because before you ever uttered those words, the Holy Spirit had already regenerated your heart installed in you the gift of faith with which that gift of faith you said the words Jesus is Lord or I believe it's the spirit who's producing that good work the reason you say you wanted to is because he not only changed your eternal life he not only changed your eternal trajectory he changed your will he gave you a new heart Ezekiel 36 26 He gave you a new heart. And with a new heart comes new desires and a new will. And with that new will, you you have new passions, new excitement, new love. All of a sudden, Jesus becomes no longer this terrifying God who looks at us from above and is ready to swoop down and destroy us with every sin because that's what some Christians have portrayed God as and it terrifies non-believers. But when the Holy Spirit regenerates your heart, God changes your understanding of who he is, who you are, and what he's doing. And all of a sudden, a new will enters your soul, and you have this desire for him, this this unexplainable want for God, this belief, this faith that he is all that I want, and I'm going to pursue him now. And yes, I want to believe because he has changed your heart. Now that factual moment when you claim that, it feels like you're making a choice, and you are. Because you are. All of us would agree. That felt like a choice to me. You are making that choice. It's a choice that's made because of the gift of faith. And with that gift of faith, you become satisfied in your relationship with God through Christ. And the product of that love and that new will and that new desire is to follow him. My wife, before she was my wife, before she was my girlfriend, was going along her own way. And God sent me into her life and said, Mark, introduce yourself to Holly. And I introduced myself to her. I have no idea that I'm going to marry her, but I meet Holly and God changes the trajectory of her life. She was going one way, God introduces me into her life, and then she's going my way, or our way. And she follows me. 
the total, the, the trajectory of her life completely changes when she meets me. And the same thing happened for all the women in here who've ever been married or are married. The trajectory of your life went a completely different way when you met the man that you married. How is that not the same in our relationship with Jesus? We were going one way. This is literally the description of repentance. We were going one way, and God shows up and changes our heart and creates in us, gives it, regenerates our heart, gives us a gift of faith. And with the gift of faith, at the same time, also comes a repentant heart, a desire to repent, to recognize our sins, to be forgiven for our sins, to confess our sins, and to bring our sins before God and say, all of this life, all of these works, everything I've done before you, God, is garbage. That's Philippians chapter 3, is garbage, and it means nothing to you. And the only credit I could ever have in your presence, God, is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, whom I now believe in. And with that gift of faith, I'm attached to him in a relationship with him. And with that gift of faith, I not only believe, but I am forgiven. And I not only forgive given, but the life, the trajectory of my life is now changed. Now I repent of my sins. Repentance is a 180. You're going one way, you meet Jesus, and you turn around and go the other way. Not just because he turns you around, but because what he gives you is a new will, a new desire, a new passion, and a new pursuit. He becomes the affection and the attention and the attraction of your heart and of your mind. And what you were going for before is no longer satisfying. And he turns you around and he says, I satisfy. And you believe that because he changed your heart and will. And you turn around and you pursue him in a marriage relationship. And you enter a covenant with him. And he becomes your husband. And you become his bride. And you follow him. And that turnaround, that change towards that repentance that turns us from pursuing sin, from pursuing the world, from pursuing our own desires, is, is what, and that, that, that change and that turnaround that we call repentance is a repentance into, not only away from sin, but into righteousness. And another word for righteousness is obedience. What is your righteousness? Christ is your righteousness. Well, what is the righteousness of Christ? The righteousness of Christ is his perfect obedience to the law of God. So even your righteousness, that is Christ in you, is perfect obedience in you. You didn't earn it. You didn't do it. Christ did it for you and you get his credit. But even your righteousness is obedience. So our obedience to God it's not a matter of rule following or just being morally good, but rather it is a matter of desire, meaning it is a matter of the heart. Obedience is a change that was produced in you by the grace of God and the gift of Christ, by the power of the Spirit who now lives in you to pursue Christ, to pursue obedience, to pursue righteousness, to be holy, and in doing so, ultimately being satisfied in Him that's new to us. We didn't have that before. Why do you obey God? Because you want to. You want to. It's not an accident that you ever obey God. You want to obey God. And if you ever obey God, it's because you're looking at a decision and you decide, I'm going to do the right thing here. I'm going to do the thing that God commands me to do. I'm going to obey God. And if you ever disobey God, it's because you're wrestling with two things. Should I obey him or not obey him? And we fall into disobedience. Either way, we're wrestling with God, which might be an idea I'll return to in a second. So why do you obey God? Because you want to. 
And why do you want to? Because when God justified you, he transformed your will. And with the new will comes a new desire. And now Christ becomes our primary motivation for all that we do because only Christ pleases God. So our walk with Christ will be determined by our desire for him. And it is our responsibility to enrich that desire, to strengthen that desire, to pursue desire. The number of times that I have talked with Christians and I felt it myself. I mean, we all go through seasons where this innate, with, you know, this internal passion or desire that we want to feel because desire feels like a feeling. It's just not there. And because of it, we, we don't get in the Word and we don't pray and we don't pursue God and we don't go to Bible studies, we don't go to church, we kind of fade, we kind of become lukewarm, somewhat nominal Christians. And we, sometimes real, genuine believers have these seasons where it's just like the passion's just not there. Well, it is there. There are two, there's, there's one thing that is definitely happening if passion is not there, if desire is not there, if pursuit of Christ is not there. There is something happening, and that thing that is happening in you that is preventing desire, that is, that is snuffing out or putting out the flame that God has lit in you, that passion, or as Paul tells Timothy, he tells him to ignite the flame. The reason that flame is dim, the reason that passion, that desire is dim, is one reason. Sin. Sin is keeping that desire low. In my counsel with people, in these scenarios where they tell me the desire is just not there. I tell them, it's sin. There's a reason it's sin. I know it because not only does the word tell it to me, but that's my experience too. When my desire is limited, there's sin disrupting my relationship with God. So what is the sin? Well, it could be a variety of different sins, but ultimately, I can tell you this much, those people typically, most of the time, are not in the word they do not have a godly discipline of being in the word. They do not have a godly discipline of being in prayer. They do not have a godly discipline of communing with God's people. They do not have a godly discipline to do discipleship. They do not have a godly discipline to give. They do not have a godly discipline to serve. And all of the other godly disciplines in scripture, they probably are not engaged with. That is called disobedience. Because those are things we're commanded to do. And when we don't do them, we, we, we are pulling ourselves away. Repentance, remember, was the turning from the world and turning towards Christ. When, when, we're, when we're pursuing sin or, or not pursuing righteousness by not doing the godly disciplines we're commanded to do, that means we're following sin. Their sin is disrupting. We're not in the word. We're not in prayer. We're not doing these things we should be doing. So my solution to people who do not desire God is not, you just got to pray for more desire. Now, I definitely recommend that. But there's more to it than that. You have to fight for desire. Well, what does fighting for desire look like? It looks like obedience. Fighting for desire is to fight for obedience. And when you fight for obedience, you're thinking, yeah, but I, it's not about me and my work. 
That's right, it's not about your work. Fight for obedience, and if you win that battle for obedience, if you conquer those disobediences, if you overcome your lack of desire to be in the Word and you just do it anyways, you overcome your lack of desire to be in prayer and you just do it anyways, and you overcome your lack of desire to give and you just do it anyways, and you overcome your lack of desire to serve and you just do it anyways, and you overcome your lack of desire to be discipled by another believer and you just do it anyways guess what happens it's called obedience and from that obedience God will satisfy you and your desire for him will grow that's not you earning anything that's not legalism that's the satisfaction of the gospel's product in you. That's the power of the gospel at work in you. That's how the gospel not only saved you, but continues to save you and work in you every day of your life through all of your sanctification. So if our relationship with Jesus is based on desire, a desire that God imposed on us with this new will that he gave us, a new will to desire him, then our lives ought to look as though we genuinely love Jesus. And we've taken this word, you know, love Jesus, love God, God loves you, Jesus loves you, and we've said it so many times in church culture, which is great, we should, but we say it so many times without meaning behind it, without teaching behind it, without reason behind it, without purpose behind it, without the word behind it, and we just repeat this phrase, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, you should love Jesus, you should love Jesus, love Jesus, and we just say those words so many times, it just becomes this dull sound in the background and it loses its luster and its power and its imaginative creativity to change your life. If you really really desire him, your life should look like genuine love for him. And love can become stagnant. And a stagnant love is eventually revealed in a lack of action that is meant to accompany that love. A lack of desire. A lack of obedience. So, when love for Christ fades, so also does obedience. And the solution is to increase obedience, and with it comes love, and that is not legalism. That's love, because obedience is love. There are days where my wife could probably look at me and say, you know what, I don't really love you right now. You know, there's sometimes I behave a certain way, say certain things, and do certain things that would totally justify her saying, like, not feeling very, like, you know, not feeling like I desire you very much right now. The love isn't there. But guess what? She's committed to me. She has to love me. She has to. It's not a choice. She has to. And the same goes for me. I have to love her. She has to obey God. She has to submit to me. She has to. Not because I say so, because God says so. And so even when I give her reason to not desire me and love me, she has to. And so she submits anyways and prays to God that she could love me. (laughs) That's our relationship with Jesus. We might not feel it, but we have to. So we have to do the things that increase our love, which is obedience. 
And if you're thinking, well, I just can't do the things I'm supposed to do because I don't really, I, I know God wants me to, to feel it. God wants me to want to do these things and I won't do them till, he, till I want to do them. So I'm going to ask him to make me want to and if I ask him to make me want to, I'll just wait until he makes me want to. And what he's yelling is, if you want to, then do the things I told you to do. It's like that, that old uh, analogy or story you guys have probably heard before. That there was a man sitting on his roof and the town was flooded. And he's on his roof praying, God, please send me help. And a guy comes by in a boat and says, hey, I'm here to help you. And he goes, no, no, I'm waiting for God to rescue me. And the boat goes away, right? It's like, God's like, I sent you a boat. <laughs> and that's what we do. I mean, the boat... If, if the flood is sin and disobedience and you're sitting on the roof and you're like, God, I want to love you. Save me from this lack of love I have for you. Come rescue me and make me love you. He sends a boat and the name of that boat is obedience. We're like, no, 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 that's not what I need. I want you to make me want you. He's like, no, 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 I sent you salvation. I sent you my spirit who does obedience in you. So follow me and it will produce that desire. Revelation 2.5 tells us this. The Ephesian church was doing everything they were supposed to do. They were defying heretics. They were changing their culture. They were ensuring sound doctrine. And in the process, they lost their passion, love, and desire for Jesus. And in Revelation 2.5, or I'm sorry, Revelation 2.4, Jesus says to them, I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So before that, he says, you're doing everything, you're getting rid of all the false prophets and false teachers, you're doing the right things, but in the process, you forgot about your passion and love for me. And what is Jesus' solution for them to return to love? Listen to what his solution is in Revelation 2.5. Remember, therefore, meaning this is the answer. You lost your love for me. How do I get this love back? Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. What's the solution to increase that love? To change from not desiring him, not loving him, to turning back into falling in love for, with Christ. And the answer is repent of the sin and get back to obedience. Do the works. Jesus doesn't command them to love him. He commands them to obey him. Why? Because love is revealed in obedience. Now, this idea of marriage, I want you to think about this for a second. If your spouse came up to you and your spouse walked right up to you and they grabbed your face and they kissed you with passion and looked right in your eyes and said, I love you more than anything else, you'd feel pretty assured about their love for you, right? Right? But if they said, and, and though I love you more than anything, I just wanted to let you know one thing. I'm going on a date with someone else tonight. You would immediately consider their earlier statement about how much they love you. You'd consider that a lie. They're full of it. Why? Because we all know that genuine love must be accompanied by actions that validate and confirm that love. 
The same is true of our relationship with Jesus. We are his bride and he is our bridegroom or our husband. The church is his bride. He is the husband. And when we say that we love him, actions in the form of obedience must accompany such claims. Following him, following the husband, the bride submitting to the husband and following him is the only real evidence that we do love him. In John 3, 29, John the Baptist says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Who's the bridegroom? Christ. Who's the bride? The church. So who has the bride? Christ, which makes him the bridegroom. And he says, The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. That's John talking about himself. John is trying to convince the Jews that he is not the bridegroom. He's not the Messiah. People are like, Are you the Messiah? Like, nope. I'm here to proclaim the Messiah. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. And when I hear his voice, I get excited. I rejoice at his voice. And he goes on and says, therefore, this joy of mine is complete. John expresses the true heart of a follower of Christ when he says, this joy of mine is complete. Meaning, Jesus being the Christ, Jesus being the husband of the bride, his church, that's the ultimate satisfaction. John is saying, now I'm satisfied. He's finally here. The Messiah is finally here. The bridegroom has finally, after thousands of years of God promising, the groom is coming. The bride be prepared. And then Christ shows up on earth. And when he shows up on earth, John says, now my joy is complete. The husband has arrived, and me, with the rest of the bride, can finally rejoice. Our joy is satisfied. It's complete. He's here. The husband has come to claim his woman. The husband has come to claim his bride. It's finally happening. That's what John is saying. Marriage is just an analogy or an illustration to serve our affections, to tell us how we ought to feel about our relationship with Jesus. So going along with this analogy, if Jesus asks us to marry him, how could we not be overjoyed? How could, we not, how could our joy not be complete? That's why I asked you at the beginning, how did you feel? What were you thinking when that marriage proposal happened, when your husband got down on one knee and proposed to you? Husbands, when you got down on one knee and she said yes, what were you two feeling? Imagine if you stood up and said, oh, I'm so excited to spend the rest of my life devoted strictly and only to you. I love you so much. I can't wait to marry you and have children and build a life together. And I also can't wait for the weekends when I get to run around with any woman I want besides you. But don't worry, you're my greatest love. She'll be like, whoa, 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 hold that back up. What? You're going to do what on the weekends? Well, I'm committed to you and to you alone. I mean, I love you more than any of them. But but it's just, I'm just going to, you know, just play around. I mean, I come home to you. No woman's going to accept that proposal. And no man would accept. Now, here's the thing. Jesus would never do that to us. And he never makes such a claim. The more realistic analogy is Jesus proposes to us. A husband proposes to his wife and the wife says, Yes, I love you. But I also love other things. I want to experience things with other men. What man would accept that kind of response to a marriage proposal? 
When that woman says yes to her husband, she is saying no to every other man in all of the world for the rest of her life. And she is fully committing herself only to him. And that is our relationship with Jesus. That is why the biblical authors use marriage as an analogy because our devotion to Jesus is, sing is a singular commitment to him and all that he commands. It is to him alone because just as much as a new wife is completely satisfied in her husband, so also a believer is completely satisfied in Christ. And that is the reason for obedience. Obedience isn't just do what I say because I'm your God. Obedience is... I am Christ and I satisfy what could you want besides me? And our answer is nothing. And he goes, prove it in John 15. Prove it. Prove that I'm the most satisfying thing to you. Well, how do I prove it, Jesus? You obey me. If I really satisfy, you obey me. If I really satisfy, you won't pursue other things that you think will satisfy you. Just like a husband saying, will you marry me? Because woman, I will satisfy your every need. Emotionally, mentally, physically, in every aspect of worldliness, not worldliness in terms of sinfulness, but in every aspect of this earth and this life and this world and all of its provisions, I will satisfy you and sexually and psychologically, I will satisfy all the desires of your life as your husband so that you have no need to pursue any other thing, any other false idol or God or desire or sin or other man because I will satisfied. That's what a husband claims when he asks a woman to marry him. And the reason he, that's the way it is is because our marriages in this life on this earth are images, analogies of the marriage relationship we have with Christ. And Christ satisfies leaving us with no desire to pursue anything or any sin because it will not satisfy. So when we say yes to Christ, we're saying no to every action that we performed in the past. We're saying no to every idol we've ever had, every sin desire, every other passion that doesn't please God. We're saying no to our past, to all of our other loves. We're saying no to all the other things that held our attention and our affections and our devotion and our delight and our desires and our love. And we're saying yes to Christ and Christ alone. And if that's true, your life should look like it. He is our devotion. He is our desire. Obedience is not our desire. He is. And if he is, obedience naturally, organically, and supernaturally follows. God's love, which is the love that consumes Jesus, is so profoundly immersive and engulfing that it pours out from the Father onto the Son and from the Son and onto us and is confirmed and revealed by the Son's perfect faithfulness, not only to his Father, but by his perfectly enduring and steadfast faithfulness to us, his bride. Jesus is the ultimate husband with the ultimate perfect love for his bride. So when a, a man proposes, when a man like that proposes to you an eternal relationship and confirms his devotion to you and demands that you respond, your response be equally as devoted and faithful, how could we, one, say no, or two, say yes, and then cheat on him? And go back to pursuing our former loves and our former devotions and our former lovers and our former ways. 
If you meet Jesus, your life should be profoundly different. Who knows, women, what you would be doing if you had not met your husband, where you would be, who you'd be married to, what town you'd live in, what church you'd go to, what job you'd have, what things you'd like, what shows you'd watch, what books you'd read, what foods you'd eat, how much you'd weigh, what your psychological makeup would be at this point, what your desires and passions would be. Your entire life would be different. But nope, you met this man. And what did he do? He changed your life. He changed the direction of your life. He changed the trajectory of your life. He changed the pursuits in your life. And because of your relationship with him, together you have made decisions about your life that you would not have otherwise made if you had not met him. Your life is profoundly different just because you're married to another person. How much more profoundly different should your life be when you meet Jesus? So we should love him, but it's hard to love, it's hard to keep love, it's hard to maintain it because our sinful nature wants to sin. And so what do we do? We fall out of love, not really, we know we love him, but it feels like we fall out of love, we fall out of desire, we'd call it maybe, we fall out of passion and zeal, we don't pursue him as fervently as we were before. And the problem with that is because of that lack of love, we just think, well, I'm just not feeling it. So it kind of excuses us from doing the obedience we're supposed to do. But here's the problem. Your marriage to Christ is not predicated on love. It's not predicated on love. Your marriage to your spouse is not determined by love. It is not created it, by love. It's created in love, and love is a part of it, but love is not the determining factor for your marriage. And love is not the primary determining factor for our covenant marriage with Christ. What is? Commitment. You made a commitment to your spouse. The number of times I've made, heard, the number of times, I'm sure you've heard it too, where someone is, is trying to divorce their spouse, and what do they say? I just don't love them anymore. I just don't love her anymore. The love is faded. The passion's faded. The love's just not there. I'm just, I just don't love him, so I'm going to divorce him. I just don't love her, so I'm going to divorce her. My response is the same every time. Love has nothing to do with it. You made a commitment. And your commitment is not only to stay with that person. Your commitment is to fight for that love. Until one of you dies, that's what you fight for. And it's the same reality in a relationship with Jesus. If you're not feeling it, you fight for that feeling. And you fight for that feeling by fighting for obedience, by doing the things he commands of you, by getting in his word, getting in prayer, communing with God, going to church, doing Bible study, studying his word, giving, serving, loving, sacrificing, whatever it takes, doing all the things the word of God tells you to do, which you'll only know if you're in the word, and doing them until he sparks that love again, before he increases that desire. You made a commitment in this relationship Love is irrelevant if it's, if it's not there. It's relevant in that it's needed, 
But it's irrelevant in that when it's lacking or when it's gone or feels like it's gone, it does not excuse us from leaving that relationship because that covenant is determined by commitment. And Christ made an eternal commitment to you and you made an eternal commitment to him. And we are being commanded in the presence of God and of Jesus and the elect angels who know that presence, who know that love, who know that desire to pursue that desire to fight for him. Marriage is a covenant. And so also our marriage with Christ is a covenant, one in which is secured by his own sacrifice. And he not only asks, but demands that we also return love to him by doing what he did, sacrifice. He sacrificed everything to make us his bride. And it is our joy to sacrifice everything as well to enjoy him. Meaning our covenantal commitment to him requires that we abandon or sacrifice all former devotions and love and commitments that no longer uphold the new and more profound commitment we make with him. We give up our old life. That's the sacrifice. We pick up our cross and we follow him. We carry it behind the cross that he carried Let me motivate you, okay? Let me just motivate you for a second with this profound reality that <laughs> I was thinking about this last night and it just, it just broke me. I was like so terrified that I was literally sitting on my couch downstairs and I had a blanket on me. And I had to put the blanket over my head because I was literally terrified of the presence of God. I don't know how to explain it. I've never felt that in my life ever. And I was like, do you want me to talk about this tomorrow? And he was like, I don't know. We'll think about it in the morning. <laughs> and... Uh, I just thought about the reality of Christ, the reality of Jesus. Who is he? And I thought about, like, do you guys know what a Christophany is? A Christophany is when Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, there's Father, Son, and Spirit, one God, one, one God in three distinct persons. They are the same. They are not copies of each other. They are the same image of each other. The Son is the Father, and the Father is the Son, yet though they are distinct in personhood, they are, they are the same. It's, it's a concept our human minds have a really difficult time fathoming and grasping and understanding, but it's a reality that Scripture clearly explains to us. And so, in, it is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, whom is Jesus, right? And in, in the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, Christ, shows up in the Old Testament in all these unique ways, okay? Sometimes he shows up as like a burning bush with Moses, right? And Moses approaches the bush, and the, and the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, in the bush is the flame. The bush isn't being consumed. He says, take off your sandals. The ground you're standing on is holy ground. Why is it holy? Because that's the Lord in that bush. 
But then there are these times when, when the Son of God shows up in these Christophanies that are human form. He does it with Abraham in Genesis 18. He does it with Jacob in Genesis 32. He does it with Joshua in Joshua 5. He does it with Moses in Exodus 33, where the Son of God, God himself, in the second person, because God the Father, it's the Son who decides, it's the Son of God, God himself, as the second person of the Trinity, who reveals himself in human form. It's God's way of showing off. God's saying, hey, look, in the Old Testament, he just, show, he just pops up out of nowhere. He's not born. He's not made. He just is. He shows up to Abraham. Abraham, what's up? I'm the Lord. And Abraham's like, yes, you are. What do you want with me? And he worships him. And he says, Sarah's going to have a baby. See you later. And he just disappears. He doesn't die. He, he's just gone. He's just, he was just there, and then he was just gone. And then he shows up with Jacob, and he wrestles with Jacob. And he's there, and then he's just gone. And then he shows up with Joshua, and, he, and he's there, and then he's gone. He shows up with Joshua with a sword before Jericho falls, and he talks to Joshua, and then he's just gone. Moses just shows up, and then he's just gone. He just meets the Moses at the tent of meeting. Moses takes the tent out of the center of the people and takes it out far away from the people. It's called the tent of meeting. And, and Exodus 33 says that, and there the Lord always spoke with Moses like a man face to face. So God, in the second person, the Son, shows up in these Christophanies, these Old Testament revelations of God himself in human form and interacts with man. And it's God's way of saying, look, I am a man. I can be a man. I can reveal myself like a man. And I can just be that man and then not be that man. Look, I'm, I'm a human. Look at me. I'm God, fully God. I'm not less God. Now I'm wearing human flesh. I'm still fully God. In fact, the flesh itself is righteous too, perfectly righteous. And in this human form, I'm just showing you uh, arms and hands and fingers and eyes and a head and legs and feet and all this stuff just to show you that like I can be whatever I want to be whenever I want to be it. I can be a burning bush. Boom, watch, burning bush. Now, I'm a human again. I can do whatever I want. This is my reality. I created this. I have absolute authority, control, power, and sovereignty over every molecule that exists in the world and it all operates according to what I say and I say, boom, human being and now boom, human being gone. So he shows off in the Old Testament, I can make myself a human. I can just become, and, and, this, and this human is this brand new person. Like when someone, when a baby's born, like it's a brand new person. And this person is going to be a person forever. They have a soul, and that soul is going to go to one or two places, and that soul is going to be a human being until the day that they die, and they're going to grow and mature and become an adult, and, and, and this person is forever this person. But Christ shows up as a Christophany in the Old Testament, and he's just like, I'm here. No, I'm not here. This person now exists, this person that is me, this guy that I'm showing you, and then I don't exist. And all that time, we're sitting here going, what is, why is he showing up like this? And what he's doing is he's preparing us. In a sense, he's practicing. He doesn't need to practice because he doesn't need practice. The practice is for us. He's preparing us for, there's a day when I am coming like this. And when I do, now this is the importance of the virgin birth. This is why Mary is so important to our theology. This is why the Virgin Mary and her womb is so important. Because in the Old Testament, you're just like, boom, I'm here, later I'm gone. Boom, here, gone. Boom, here, gone. Just shows up, disappears. This, and this, this human that just 
appeared out of nowhere that is the Lord himself, just disappeared. And what he's announcing, and he does announce all throughout the Old Testament, is there's a day when I will come, and I will come for good, where I won't just appear out of nowhere and then disappear, but a day when I will be like you in a more profound way, a day when I will be born. And my commitment to you is not just that I will be born, but that by being born, I will stay human forever. And so the Christophanies in the Old Testament is Jesus' way, and yes, I call him Jesus in the Old Testament because Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Meaning he has always been Jesus the Christ. Even though he showed up as a man in the Old Testament, He was always Jesus. He always knew he was going to be Jesus, but the idea of him going to be Jesus implies that God is restricted by time, and God is not restricted by time. He created time. So if he's ever Jesus, he was always Jesus. So Jesus always is, because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what he declares is there's going to be a day when I will enter this world and stay in this human form. All the other times he shows up, disappears. And then he says, I'm going to show up and I'm going to stay there. I'm going to stay in that flesh, not just for a whole lifetime, but for eternity, making the womb of Mary the entrance of God into humanity. So he shows up in these Christophanies and goes, one day I'm going to enter this world for good. Through the womb of God's elected woman, Mary, who is a virgin. It will be an unbroken womb. And he will break into humanity and stay human forever. And as I thought about these Christophanies, I thought about what does, look, think, think about this God who is so unimaginably, unfathomably great that he can just appear make a human being and have that human being just not appear anymore. He toys with reality because all of reality is his. And then this God who can literally just appear and disappear as man and then be a different man and then be a burning bush and and be a voice and show up in dreams and interpret dreams and create realities and, and determine what nations do. This God who dictates all of reality, the Son of God himself, Jesus the Christ, has forever reigned over all of creation, over all of reality, and still continues to reign today and says, I'm coming into your world. I'm going to show up to be like you so that I can save you, so that I can have you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, for our sake, for our marriage, for our love, for our commitment, for our salvation, for our eternal life, for our life in this life, for us. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Why would we not want him? And as I'm, like, last night, as this just thought is just racking my brain, I'm hit with this reality when Jesus shows up, when the Son of God shows up to Jacob. And he wrestles with Jacob all night long. I can tell you one thing. Jacob was not having fun. He did not enjoy that. You want to wrestle with the Lord? 
That's not an easy task. That's a burden. That's heavy. That's hard. That hurts. All night long, he wrestles with the Lord. And last night, I'm laying there, and I'm going, why are you wrestling with me? What am I, like, what am I doing? God just wrestled with my heart, and he just, like, pinned me to the ground, and I'm like, okay, I'm terrified. I get it. And the wrestling he does with me, he goes, you don't even grasp the severity of who I am. The supremacy and greatness and grandeur and glory that is Jesus Christ. Mark, you don't get it. Christophanies. You think that's hard for me? You want to know what was hard? Is to leave the God I love to become a human like you. That's hard. To commit myself to an eternity in your presence. To love you. To die for you. To be your husband. To embrace you as my bride. To make a commitment and a covenant with you. That I expect in return a love and a devotion. And you spit on that covenant. When you sin against me. And you sin against my heart. And you sin against all of those Christophanies. And you sin against my, my desire to. And my, my action to. Come into the world through the womb to commit myself to human flesh for an eternity to love you forever and you ignore it and you despise it and you disgrace it when you sin against me. And as I felt like God himself was just like, what are you doing? I was immediately overwhelmed with the Holy Spirit and he's like, stop yelling at yourself, Mark. That's not how I talk to you. I love you. I died for you. I committed myself to you. I embrace you. I love you. My, I tell you in my word, come to me. I am gentle and lowly. And I was just like <laughs> overwhelmed with emotions. I'm just like, I don't know what to think, God, or how to feel. And he's like, just love me. That's all I want. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We really don't. I mean, we want to, and we do, and we do because you let us, and you make us, and I, we just want to love you more. You have made a commitment to us, and we made a commitment to you, and we want to honor that commitment. We don't want to be idolatrous. We want to... We want to obey you because that's what your bride should do. Because you've given us a love. You have... You have revealed yourself to us. How can we not be changed? So make us change. In Jesus' name, amen.